There's one thing I wanted to look up really quick, which is, is there any other Sansa chapters after the Selene chapter? And the this answer is the last to that one. is... Well, except for Georgia's sample chapter for the Winds of Winter. Yeah, that's the last... Oh, yeah, because I remember I said that the other day, but I couldn't remember if I was making that up or if that was real, and it is real. She's still with Randa. Oh, I haven't read the sample chapter in a very long time. I haven't read it, but I know that much about it. And so I was paying extra attention, obviously, not only for the reread, just for my impressions on her in general, because it's like, it seems like almost make-believe when I think about the storyline continuing forward in the winds of winter, like, oh, it's just going to pick up where it left off and it's going to, we're going to get answers to all this. It's kind of a weird thought, huh? It is a weird thought. You ready to get into this? Anyway, are we podcasting now? I'm, I'm excited <laughs> for this one today. I don't know about you. I'm excited. I feel like we have a lot of ground to cover. And also, everyone knows I'm always down for a Sansa chapter. Elaine. Oh, sorry. My bad. But Elaine. not for long. Not for long. Hi, everyone. Today, John 8 and Elaine 2 from A Feast of Dragons. Welcome. A Dance of Dragons and A Feast for Crows put together. We're getting closer to the end of the story. We're getting real. Let's see. How long do we have left in... We only have a couple, a handful of chapters left in A Feast for Crows. We're like five chapters left. We have four left directly, and then there's a big gap. And then we put Samuel 5 uh, as the At fourth the to last chapter. Yeah, mm-hmm. which that's going to be so much fun. Yeah, so this is the last time we see Sansa, Elaine, and A Song of Ice and Fire until we get to the sample chapters. So that's pretty exciting. And we're saying goodbye to Val, everyone's favorite wildling queen. We're saying goodbye to Val. We're saying hello to Bowen Marsh. And we are beginning the long and painful process of saying goodbye to John, I guess you could say. (laughs) (laughs) These John chapters are a, especially because everyone in pop culture, because of pop culture, everyone in the world knows what ends up happening to Jon Snow. This is just a... Like a dissertation on his flaws. I know. We just get to go through all of his mistakes it's, one by one. It's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to read it from this perspective. And I guess we could just dive in with this because it's something that really encompasses the whole chapter. But I think that knowing what's coming, like everybody knows, it's really easy to judge John pretty harshly on how he does or doesn't handle different situations. And how his leadership style could have been improved and how he could have, you know, whatever, millions of other things. But when I was reading through this through the first time, this was not a consequence that I was really anticipating. And so I don't know if you feel the same way, too. But if knowing the end result has drastically changed the way that I read the end of his story in a way that doesn't quite affect some of the other characters. Um, I just feel like his mistakes are just laid out so plainly <laughs> through these chapters. It's kind of a weird miniature version of having seen the show and rereading or reading the books for the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a little extra, though, because we've seen him come back to life. And so we can kind of speculate on what's happening to him and why and be a little less dramatic about it because it seems like everything, at least based on the show, seems to work out for him in the end. Right. Ollie gets hung. <laughs> Justice is served. Violently. <laughs> well, we're at that point in our watch through on Rewatch the Throne about halfway through through season five where things are really coming to a head. We just for... did Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken a couple yeah, days ago. Yeah, no big deal. 
So that was a rough one. Hard homes on the horizon. Oh, and we get to talk about hard home a mm-hmm. little bit in this chapter. Yeah. Did you look up any hard home theories before we recorded? Nope. I didn't either, but I heard about some theories. <laughs> well, it's, they all seem pretty straightforward. It's it's Think about it. If if this was something that George R. R. Martin said for sure, something is going to happen here, or if this was communicated at all to the folks behind the show, what a great reason to make it the highlight of season five. Mm-hmm. There was no mention of its lore in the show, just... It was a place that looked like this, and this is what happened here. It could mm-hmm. be just a nice nod that was connected because there's such excellent prose and theory craft about what actually could have happened in Hard Home that they were like, what a great place to add this, to write in this conflict where we can have Jon Snow swinging a sword at the White Walkers and introduce the Night King. Right, right. A place that already has so much history for big book fans. Do you think it's actually going to happen? Maybe. I actually, I don't, I mean, I think that with how much talk is happening about it in this chapter or i mean not talk but there's just a lot of lore around it and a lot of mystery and i think that that's not for nothing you know the tale he did hard home have been halfway toward becoming a town the only true town north of the wall until the night 600 years ago when hell had swallowed it its people had been carried off into slavery or slaughtered for meat depending on which version of the tale you believed their homes and halls consumed in a conflagration that burned so hot that the watchers on the wall far to the south had thought the sun was rising in the north. Afterward, ashes rained down on haunted forest and shivering sea alike for almost half a year. That line was hard not to read in Dan Carlin's voice. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Traders reported finally only nightmarish devastation where Hardhome had stood, a landscape of charred trees and burned bones, waters choked with swollen corpses, choked, swollen. Blood-chilling shrieks echoing from cave mouths that pocked the great cliff that loomed above the settlement. Six centuries had come and gone since that night, but Hardhome was still shunned. Still talks of being haunted. White Walkers. It could be anything from volcanoes to dragons. People think it might be a volcano. If we think about the, the geography of Westeros, strange topography, mountains. We also have what happened in Valyria. Volcanic event, huh? I don't know. I mean, I don't think that, that did. I don't think that something like that would diminish what is also uh, an unholy place that he calls it. I think that even if the event was a natural one, that doesn't really take away from the fact that all hell broke loose. You know? Yeah, but six hundred years ago, though, that sounds like the exact place that something big will happen in the story, or at least. Yeah. It- could be a specter right now to just try to make John's plight sound a lot more hopeless. Well, what do you think? I think that the name Hard Home is pretty, it's just like, hey, I want to I want to paint a picture for you. I want you to feel a certain way when we mention this place. And the first time I saw it was on the show because we hadn't done the reading order for the podcast yet. So seeing it again, I think I draw it's sort of an unfair feeling toward it. Maybe the same way you felt when you're reading through these John chapters, the John chapter today, and you're like, well, I'm going to look at it with a different lens. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of already expecting it to be kind of hopeless, but I think it could just be more excuses that people are throwing up to try to stray John off of his course, what he believes to be the right thing to do. Makes everything north of the wall sound really hard, and everything north of the wall seems kind of scary, so why not have a place called Hard Home, where it was 600 years ago, something huge happened where there was ash falling for months in the shivering sea that sounds like a volcano that sounds like what volcanoes do here at least on earth so i don't know was it a big was it a like 
a dragon attack was it something to do with obviously maybe you think about the white walkers but that doesn't really make much sense because we would have probably had a more recent historical callback to what they were up to if something happened 600 years ago that involved them unless everyone involved died as well when did they have lost if there was so much fire that there was ashes falling from the sky right maybe everyone died well what did they say it says uh the folks who didn't die were carried away or into slavery something whatever that might mean Jeez. so then there's this vision i guess you could say or preaching mother mole has with the wildlings and or a vision, I guess you could say, and they all have followed this vision that a ship would lead them to safety and they're waiting at hard home for that to pan out and come to fruition, which is such a terrible and interesting place for people to just kind of like be hanging out. And I can only imagine what sort of belief or like desperation would lead you to congregate in a place that I'm sure is well-known not just for people south of the wall at the wall um like the night's watch but right. anybody is going to be wary of a place like hard home and then for them to be congregating there and kind of waiting i think it's really interesting that that's whatever desperation leads you there you know what i mean yeah it seems like it would be a place that is sensitive for the wildlings with the slaving and the strange people coming from across the sea to wreak havoc on a place that's already pretty tough to live but it might be a good shield for your plan if maybe the vision wasn't real it's like hey where could we go that would potentially be away from anyone trying to do something like Mm -hmm. maybe go to the ruins of valyria if you need a way through because pirates are so scared to go there right i don't know if it would be the same for the white walkers though maybe there's some kind of natural formation that makes it difficult for them or maybe they just want to be so close to the sea that if it comes to it they can't get across the wall maybe someone will come rescue them right or they can get out in some way into the the middle of the water that's really sad it's it's a i think it, it paints the reality of what they're dealing with and why john snow is so why he's so sure about his decision to continue with accepting the wildlings into westeros Mm -hmm. as members of the night's watch and so on right has decided to be a leader or what he thinks a leader should be like and he's like i'm gonna do it just like this and i don't really hear jokes anymore or humor so i i sent away all my funny friends and any other attempts at humor just won't cut it he reminds me of it's like a very intensely Gryffindor thing to do. You know what I mean? When you're like so crazily focused on one idea that you're con- everything else kind of falls away. You think John Snow's a Gryffindor? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's, it's like kind of prejudice against like one house of what of uh, house of what, so it's one house of Hogwarts. I'm like, maybe other people, like maybe someone in Ravenclaw would have a one track mind as well. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a pretty. I'm not saying a one track mind necessarily. I'm saying like a reckless, and not even reckless, but just like a very intense alignment with an idea that you're going to charge 100 percent forward with regardless of what anybody else around you is saying, even though it is the moral high ground, you know? And I'm not going to really tell anyone else the plan. Yes. Only my close friends know the plan. 
I just think it's a Gryffindor thing. I'm sorry to be <laughs> offensive. I, I think it definitely I think it definitely helps <laughs> that it's it's related to um a saving people thing. For sure. You know what I mean? That it's a For self sure. it, it's a apparently a selfless act. I love his line where he didn't use plural, he used the singular context when he said, I am the sword that guards the realm of men. What oh, else can yeah. I do? That's a great catch. Mm-hmm. It's just like, well, I okay. It's like he doesn't have a choice. He does have a choice, but, but to he him, feels like he doesn't have a choice. Right. He's taking the responsibility of his role seriously and he's saying, I gotta do this. Which is a good thing, but you can't do everything good, right? You're gonna mess up at some stuff. Right. And you can't <laughs> <laughs> you can't do everything by yourself. And I think that he's very much trying to do this alone without really taking the time to hear out what the rest of the Night's Watch is saying. So a big portion of this chapter, he's just kind of hanging with Awful Yarwick, Bowen Marsh, Septon Celador. Like Celador without an R. Yeah, I forgot his name for a second. But, um, you know, I think that regardless of who we think is quote-unquote in the right or the wrong, they're having a pretty intense conversation throughout the most majority of this chapter. And I think that John kind of dismisses everything that they're feeling. And I understand that it's been a conversation that's been ongoing, but it's just interesting to kind of, like I said at the beginning, try not to read this from a very judgmental place because I think it's very easy to see all of his mistakes, but he's pretty dismissive. George R. R. Martin wanted us to feel the motivations behind what happened, what ended up happening to Jon Snow when uh, they for the watched him. Yeah. And so we're really being walked through it and we're really we're really getting the uh, the sort of bird's eye view at understanding exactly why these guys feel that way. And I think that maybe your first read through, maybe you would just swallow it like you normally do when the main character or someone that resembles a main character does sort of the morally right thing and doesn't have an explanation for it or other people don't quite understand. That's, part of what makes a story interesting in the first place it's like if people knew then where would the tension come from and what would we mm-hmm. be reading for it's just kind of disarming you know what i mean it just exactly. feels normal. and that's that that's that cliche george r, r. martin a song of ice and fire kind of thing that everybody says but it's really true when we are in this situation with john is that comfort and ease at which it's like, well, he's not going to get in any real sort of trouble because it's Jon Snow and he's mm-hmm. one of the main characters, one of the mainest of the main characters, you know? So I think that this, in my mind, reading this through the first time could have gone in a million different ways, chiefly the wildlings coming over the wall and there being some squabbles, but then they get in some big battle and they all get united together and everything works out. Yeah, exactly. And everyone kind of cheers and throw their fits in the air. And that's not to say that. Something like that won't maybe eventually happen, especially as things north of the wall continue to come south. But um, I don't remember what I was saying. With that. Oh, <laughs> that's what I that's what I would like assume have eventually happened. But to really look at John's actions from like a real and tangible way and kind of see his flaws as a leader and see him taking the moral high ground doesn't always work out for you and it's he has a moment here where he's thinking about i need to find the quote because he's thinking about his dad or he's not thinking about his dad but he makes some mention about 
a man's honor when I think it's like at, right after what you quoted about him being the sword that guards, guards the realms of men. Yeah, I think it was the second half of that quote. Yeah, he says, and in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honor. That is so true. And it's like a sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I agree with what John Snow says there. Per Ned Stark, thank you, Ned Stark, for instilling wisdom in this character. It's probably why we like him so much. I mean, yeah, right. one man's honor. I get it. But you're the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and that's a, an order of people that we've come to understand. They come from a lot of different places, and they're there for a lot of different reasons. But among them, they share a burden, which is they are there to sacrifice for the rest of the realm. And he's the guy that's in charge of them. So, yeah, it definitely falls on you to play the game, but to play it in a way that keeps the best interest for everyone at heart. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's interesting because Ned kind of did the opposite with the same intention. Oh, wow. You know? So mm. it's kind of interesting to have his son oh, after no. he kind of failed in that regard, going through a similar situation where he too is eventually going to at least temporarily fail. If only we had Melisandre to put Ned's head back on his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If only we had Melisandre to <laughs> fix the situation. Oh, speaking of John coming back to life, I know we're a little bit early on this, but when I was doing some... I was, I think I was clicking around for the hard home stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't get deep. We didn't have enough time before recording tonight. But uh, I saw stuff related to this chapter. People were talking about on the internet, of course, uh, the the line in this chapter where um, I can't remember exactly the quote. Maybe you do the the quote about the uh, the ice dragons. Oh yes, yes, yes. I made a note about that. The potential of that being a a reference to John. It's just something tangentially related to that. I think it was on Reddit. Someone was like, yeah, they're going to put John in one of those cells after they stab him to death, one of those cells in the wall. And he might even be there with another white or something. And they're just going to leave his body there and they don't know what to do with it and see what happens. Wouldn't that be a way to come back? They just come back to check and it's like Jesus. They roll the stone off of it and Jon Snow's alive in there. Oh my gosh. If that's the, if that's like the, <laughs> is the that insane that or what? R. Martin is going to go for, that would be wild. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Another point about those dragons, though, it was the quote I think the road beneath the wall was as dark as cold as the belly of yeah. a nice dragon. Mm. And there's the thing about Winterfell with the hot pools being heated by a dragon. That's a big are, dragon. I think it's some interesting... I think they're probably two separate dragons. Well, if it's the same dragon, there's no way anyone else is winning. Yeah. <laughs> it's the dragon the size of the gift. Uh. If one dra yeah. <laughs> it's like, or it's just really long. Why was that specifically put in that moment of crossing out of the tunnel with Val? You know? Like, like there are so many different ways to, to com convey a feeling. And... Uh, He's just amazing at it. I think that so that's, why ice I think that that's why the exactly belly of the ice question. Yeah. You know, I think that that's exactly, exactly the question. And because it's not the first time that dragon is used to describe a place. Right. And so I know this is a very surface level scratching of it, but people can kind of get down those rabbit holes themselves, which we encourage you to do. But this idea of John being put in a cell and then the stone being rolled away or whatever. That's so interesting. Yeah. One thing we haven't mentioned is Jon Snow turning his back on Stannis, the king, the one true Manus, 
as he heads south to defend John's honor and the honor of all of Westeros. <laughs> the only person who's ever really come to John's rescue. <laughs> he, he takes he takes he takes his prize, the king's prize, which is so strange. He takes the king's prize and leads the king's prize through that belly of the ice dragon and into the dark north of the wall to send her on her way to, to find Tormund Giants Bay. <laughs> I see what you did there. I got. I feel like I got to cut that out. It's just too. It's just too <laughs> irreverent. It's just literally too irreverent. You know what I mean? You sound like a high school teen on Vine. Yeah, I do. <laughs> high school teen on Vine is my aesthetic. <laughs> that vapes like vapes. It has a vape in his locker and just holds right. it in so long that the vape disappears. Vapes like under your desk in the middle of class, kind of thing. God, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So John just sends Val on her merry way, and. We she promises kind of, she'll be back. She promises she'll be back. And then I, is this the part where um, John kind of returns after that? He says, I'm going to be back. And I think that's a little bit later. But John eventually says he's like, winter's coming really soon. And he wondered if he'd ever see spring. Or Val ever again. Or Val, exactly. And it's like, well, probably not. But talking about John not thinking that anything is funny or interesting or being able to like laugh at a joke or anything, I think that Val is trying – hard to make light of the not it, make light in like a bad way but kind of lighten the mood a little bit and talk with john and he just really isn't having any of it yeah he's got a one-track mind he's like this is what i have to do you're a very pretty girl and i just want to keep this professional we're she kisses him on the cheek this is a very serious mission what i need you to do is to go find Tormund, Tormund giants bane do you remember Tormund? I need you to bring him back here and all of our friends that are still alive. Does that sound good? And she's like, yeah, I got it. Thanks for for setting me free. I'm actually in a really good mood right now. Do you want to maybe have an okay exchange with me before I head into the pitch darkness? The answer to that in John's mind is no. And my question is, where's Ghost? Oh, yeah. I mean, a budget for the book. I don't know. <laughs> in the show, it's like, you get it, but in the book, there's no reason not to put a line in there. It's okay. Oh, yeah, that's actually really interesting. I didn't notice that at all. It's okay. Do you think that that's like, means something? It means that I'm sad for another chapter. Mm. So do you think Tormund and his lot and Val and Mother Mole's lot are going to be at hard home and ready to travel south to the wall that way? Or do you think that this will be more of a terrestrial crossing and there'll be some kind of a scuffle in the winds of winter? Or do you think that she's never going to come back? I don't know. It's kind of interesting because part of me wants to feel like I don't know if she would come back. But then the other part of me is like, well, where else is she going to go? Where else are they going to go? White walkers, ice spiders. I feel like there is not... John's offer... For everybody at the wall is something that's confusing and weird and against all moral whatever that they're feeling. And I think that for those north of the wall who would be the beneficiaries of this, like the exact thing he's bringing to Tormund, which is come, we'll give you shelter, peace. You can fight alongside our with us with our common enemy. Everyone's going to have to fight anyway. Everyone's going to have to fight anyway. You know, I think that that is a offer that becomes super attractive when you're finally really understand what's actually going to happen. And so I can imagine this idea that like Tormund and crew and Val, they're probably going to see some stuff in a very real way and that that's going to be the thing 
that's going to send them south. And I think that they'll probably come through the wall if they can, just because there is, regardless of how rocky that relationship may be at times, like there is a relationship with John and with the Night's Watch. And so it's like a familiar thing. Also impending doom. Yeah. Also, everyone is going to (laughs) die. So, which is very real. But I definitely think that she probably doesn't quite understand the gravity of that. I mean, maybe a little bit. It's not that she hasn't seen things and that she hasn't been north of the wall her whole life, but the gravity. Right. They had a reason to gather everyone under the banner of Mance Raider and unite the free folk and to try to cross the wall in the first place. That's what makes me so curious about what the the what the men Bowen Marsh, Septon Seldor, Old Yarwick, why they are so hard on yeah. this tech. The Val situation, the wildling situation, they're unrelenting. And it's like, hey, did you guys not see what happened the last like they wanted to come through so bad that they brought a hundred thousand people ready to fight because you guys are so stubborn that you refuse to do anything but fight. If you would have listened then or if if someone would have listened at some point, if people wouldn't have fought, if, if <laughs> some people, I mean, we're just going to keep zooming out. If some people, I don't, I'm not going to point fingers, would have pulled their heads out of their asses, there would have been 100,000 people coming through the wall that, of course, would have had to have been fed and sheltered during spring or, or sorry, during winter. Um, and as it approached, we would have had a better idea of how many people we could have to fight the White Walkers. But I understand that not everyone understands the threat specifically as good as Jon Snow does. But can't we just sort of use context clues and see what they were willing to do and just kind of do the math? It's like that that battle's already over. There's one Wegdar, one is on our side. Sorry, I said his name wrong. I almost did like almost as I had like a really legit <laughs> Song of Ice and Fire thing. I left out a one. Anyway, can't you see? Something's going on. You know what I mean? Like, just maybe now is not the time for bringing up rules that, you know what I mean? Like, what were the rules? Or where they're from. Or what the motivations are. Coming from people who are men of the Night's Watch. I don't think that they're necessarily the most upstanding people in all of Westeros. Definitely not all of them. I'm not sure about Bowen Marsh's past, but... The watch, I mean, the first, one of the first things we learned about it is like, oh, that guy's a raper, or that guy's a da-da-da. You know, it's like they're not exactly the most decorated men in the first place. And John makes that point in this chapter. Yeah. He's like, we took the oath, you know, and they took the oath too. So I'm going to go ahead and make Satin my, my, or is it Satan? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, which is, I'm, I mean. I'm just going to go ahead and, but... and make Satan my steward. He's a, uh, he's a wildlinger. He used to be a wildlinger. He's going to be my steward. And they're like, okay, you let Val free. You're letting these wildlings through. You want us to use that giant for building? Mm-hmm. <sighs> and now, now this. I'm this excited is too much. for. We're just going to have to kill you. The White Walkers to, and the Whites to descend on the wall. And for people like this to realize. But the rules. What, I know. To like actually realize what's going on. It's going to be so interesting to kind of have the for them to kind of have this moment of realization of all the stupid things that they've done and like the blind decisions that they've made. I don't know though if they there's some corpses in the ice cells, so it may come faster than we would assume when they actually see what John's weird, not weird, but his um, 
it reminds me of Kyburn type of experimenting, not That's quite funny. to that extreme, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. And I, I can't help but wonder and think about what Tormund's response is going to be. Shove it up his ass. <laughs> yeah. John could just tell them, hey, um, he could he could read the situation instead of, I mean, he is reading the situation. I think he's acting in a way that he thinks will garner the most respect. And I think that he believes that right now, because of the age gap and because of the manner of his election and just how sudden everything felt and how non-political he is, he was just like, I need to overcompensate and uh, show show who I am, show how I can be, and show how stable and steady I can be. You've seen Lord Commanders before me. You guys served under Lord G.R. Mormont, and here I am now taking his place. But he, he could bend a little bit and, and show him his hand, especially those guys that he's feeding in his personal quarters. Maybe tell them exactly why you have that dead body in the cell. Yeah, that's what I'm Maybe saying. like tell them everything, you know, maybe just start letting in all of your guys on everything. Maybe not just your best friends like Dolores Ed, the guys that turned out to be really useful. I love that part in the chapter where they were like, you know, you were right about a lot of these guys. They turned out to be pretty good additions. And I thought that that seemed like a plus, like a nice compliment in his favor as a leader. It's definitely one of those things if you were playing a, a like one of those Telltale, A Song of Ice and Fire video games, the way that you would play a game based on this story is not – it's not necessarily like you're the best fighter. It's like what decision did you choose in the the – like you've got an option. Do you send this guy to go – work in this tower or do you leave him here to you know be your best friend and be, there's pluses and minuses to all of these reasons and john felt like he did the best thing by sending his friends away and he's just not he's not letting anyone else in he's just kind of walking around doing his thing he's taking wildlings on as he took a wildling on as a squire or as a steward and he made leathers the master at arms where he's been basically hanging out because that's what he likes to do is fight people and like show other people how to fight and they're just kind of doing their own thing and he's not letting the people in that i guess fancy themselves the head guys and he's not doing it with any sort of softness you know what i mean i mean they are at the wall though you know i know but i guess softness in the in like softness isn't the right word but the way that you would talk to your friends i don't think he likes those guys <laughs> he's like i don't want to be friends well with you. no right but yeah. and i get that but it's like if I think that a lot of contention could have been lifted and tension in and of itself could have been lifted if John, like exactly you said, just get everybody in the room and tell them exactly what's going on because they're only seeing so many things. It's, it's difficult for them to conceptualize something that they can't fathom. He's comfortable with talking to Val about it. He's comfortable with sending that message along, but it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a place he doesn't go with the people that are serving him. Well, that's the problem. He feels like they should just listen to what he says. Yeah, like the problem exactly is that he's comfortable chatting up the wildlings because he relates to them. Yeah. You know, you know, but he's not comfortable talking to his own men. We've like, got you figured out, Jon Snow. I think he's a Gryffindor, so <laughs> there's my hot take. This is a this is a real problem. Like just reading this chapter and knowing what's gonna happen, it's like the momentum is not is not kind. It's not. At this point, don't you feel like they've made up their mind about John's ability to work with them. Oh, for sure. You think so? 
for sure. I think they definitely have. And he's made up his mind, too. God, that is not a good position to be in. This is just troublesome. I know. This is like him nailing. Like Hot take. Na- <laughs> this is him. This I feel like this chapter is very much like a nail in, in the coffin. I think Val, I think it's all just kind of nail in the coffin. It's con- And there's not really much backpedaling he could do at this point. It's like I said at the top of when we open this up. It's just interesting to be in this reading order at this point and to really, mm-hmm. word for word, stroke for stroke, understand every mistake that John's making. Let's move to the ominous ending of this chapter. John says, Cotter Pike's galley sail past Hardhome from time to time. He tells me there is no shelter but the caves, the screaming caves, his men call them. Mother Moa and those who followed her will perish there of cold and starvation. Hundreds of them, thousands. And then they say thousands of enemies, thousands of wildlings. Boo. Thousands of people, John thought. Men, women, children. Anger rose inside him, but when his but when he spoke, his voice was quiet and cold. Are you so blind? Or is it that you do not that wasn't quiet and cold? Maybe I should do quiet and cold. <laughs> Are you so blind? No. <laughs> That's quiet and <laughs> scheming. <laughs> yeah. Are you so blind? Or is it that you do not wish to see? What do you think will happen when all these enemies are dead? Above the door, the raven muttered, dead, dead, dead. Let me tell you what will happen. And this is when John does what we ask him to do. The dead will rise again in their hundreds and their thousands. They will rise as whites with black hands and pale blue eyes, and they will come for us. He pushed himself to his feet, the fingers of a sword hand opening and closing. I'm guessing that that's a menacing stance. You have my leave to go. So the reactions from the men, Septon Seldor, rose gray-faced and sweating. Also, Yorick, sweaty. Sorry, <laughs> sweating. No, what did sorry, I say? I just, I, no, you said that because so I said it. You said exactly that, and I just wanted to emphasize it. Oh, okay. Othel Yarwick, stiffly. Bowen Marsh, tight-lipped and pale. Thank you for your time, Lord Snow. They left without another word. So we should just break apart that last sentence, right? Exactly. Everyone is squarely in their own camp. So it doesn't matter. So there we have it. Jon Snow and his mistakes. Or not. Maybe his pride. Maybe him just trying to do the best that he can do. Maybe you should have went into a more detailed explanation of the threat that is approaching them and the rest of Westeros instead of simply making a sort of an ominous quote about all of the people that would join the Army of the Dead, which is pretty you know, scary. So you, you would think that would be enough. And I think maybe as a leader, that was all he felt like he had to say. How much do they actually tangibly know about that? That's it. I think they've heard what people have said about it. I don't know specifically about their knowledge. I know that right now that they have a ranging party that was sent north that Alistair Thorne's a part of that haven't returned yet. And there's a possibility of more information, you know, disseminating through the crew, but obviously we know what happens. So it might be a too late kind of thing. Yeah, I just feel like what they need at this point is tangible evidence and no more of John saying his spiel you know and maybe john not letting one of his prisoners go right it's a very catlin stark move what a concept lady stoneheart would be proud uh stretching it a little (laughs) are you ready to talk about this elaine chapter i've been waiting to talk about this chapter since we started recording this is i'm excited to talk about this one too this was the most comfortable any character i think in a song of ice and fire has ever been 
and I sincerely felt it in this chapter. George R. R. Martin made the eerie feel like a real place. Not that he fails to do that in any other circumstance, but I was. I just love mm-hmm. the whole thing. What do you think about it? Um, oh, I totally agree with you. Sansa's my favorite character. Welcome to the show. <laughs> but I feel like it is interesting to be in her head while she's alone for a lot of the time. And not necessarily alone, but Littlefinger isn't part of this chapter until the very end and he brings an interesting piece to it but to get the eerie from her perspective and especially as she's leaving it when you're going to be feeling overly nostalgic about something I thought was a really neat picture of it to paint and this chapter is so freaking long (laughs) (laughs) we could just get that out there I tried to read it on an exercise bike and I couldn't because I ran out of sweat (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> this chapter is genuinely so long. I Doesn't love this to, chapter, though. It's a great chapter, ah. but it's like this chapter could have been two chapters in a, two chapters, you know? Yeah, like it's, up like, it's there, like two separate and then things. The way down. Mm-hmm. And then what happens after with Littlefinger? Yeah. Like almost three separate things. Yeah, when we get to the Littlefinger part at the end, I was like, oh, right then. All right, more. Here we go. You think you're done. Yeah. You think you're done and the little finger shows up. That's a good thing, though. That's a gift. When that new uh, Corman Strike book came out, shout out to anyone who's listening who reads those, by the way. When Lethal White came out and it was like really thick, my f- of course, this is like an obvious thing. If you listen to the podcast, welcome to the show. You know this about me. <laughs> Come on now. That's a treat. It's like, look at all that extra work someone put into it. Right. So well, I think that that's part of what made this chapter awesome. Especially how good what Littlefinger talks to. Elaine slash Sansa about that whole exchange is fascinating and yeah. exciting. And so it definitely is a little bit of a treat after a lot of like, ex- not exposition, but kind of. This chapter's good. Maya Stone yeah. comes back. Everyone's favorite mule driver. Mm-hmm. Bastard what is it Robert that you like so much about it? Is it the, like you said, the description of the eerie or is it something else? I love the imagery. I love the dark room. With the the blue velvet curtains, so thick and plush and drawn, and I thought about the material that it would take for in in a world at the current state and technology like Planetos for them to have that. Of course, their royalty in some regard, or at least in the veil, that the seat of the veil, they would have access, and obviously they have obvious wealth and people working for them. They have other souls that carry people up and down a mountain that bring lemons just for lemon cakes for them, and that's just a small part of how much this system works there in the Vale and in all, places all over Westeros with these seats of nobility. And uh, we don't get to have such personal interactions with the space, and you know we mostly get descriptions and what's happening with the the conflict, but this was pretty conflict free. And it was mostly about dealing with personal, you know, issues with Robin Aaron and getting him prepared for his trip down the mountain. And so within that, Sansa is just sort of playing her role. It kind of reminded me of of Arya at Harrenhal, just kind of pretending to be someone else and being all right with it and learning the lay of the land. And, and just like her sister and uh, the rest of her family super smart in understanding quickly picking up on things and you know in this chapter the the maester who's working with Littlefinger to give Robert the sweet sleep 
you know, the way that he talks to Sansa, I felt like she was, for the first time in the series, a bona fide adult. Yes. She had, like, transformed into a different person. And to have her be a caregiver in it and to have all that, I just felt like it was very comfortable and plush. And there's just so much texture in the chapter. And I really felt like what you just said, I may, I, I hadn't thought about it, but it being uh, potentially our last time there at the Erie. And uh, I thought George R. R. Martin really sent it out in style and throughout the whole chapter, not just the beginning. The stuff at the beginning stuck out to me the most because that's what I was thinking when I first read it. I was like, whoa, this is nice. But as it goes down, I mean, we, we hear about the barrels and loading and moving stuff. I like the details that fill the world out. And um, it just was really rich, especially that moment when they were crossing the the thin uh, when I'm sure that we'll talk about that a lot, but when Sansa led Robin across that gap, yeah. it just, I felt like I was there. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. And, you know, you wouldn't expect, maybe you would because Sansa's your favorite character, shout out, but you wouldn't expect, you know, Robin Aaron and Sansa to have such a gripping moment in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it really was. And it was a different kind of of growth and enjoyment out of a story that you get or out of a series that you get normally from a song of ice and fire. Right. Well, and their relationship I think is so much more nuanced and interesting. And I think we get a real opportunity to look at that in this chapter. Mm-hmm. And Robin is just a interesting. He, he, did you ever, you know, the secret garden? Yeah. He reminds me of the Colin, um, I can't remember his last name. The kid who it thinks he's sicker than he actually is in the secret garden. And he's like laying in his bed all day demanding that people do things for him. I kind of get those kind of vibes from Robin. Um, all I remember is the key and the really cool entrance. That's part of like what built my brain as a child. But I remember no details about the story. Oh, secret garden is one of my all time faves. He just reminds me a lot of that. Um, but to see Sansa as you said, be a caregiver and kind of being able to make definitive decisions and have control over any sort of situation, even if it's relatively small. Not that Robin's health is small or getting down the the mountain is small, but you know what I mean? In terms of yeah. A Song of Ice and Fire, I think that that totally adds into this feeling that you had when you're reading through the first time. But um, it's exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. And it's interesting to see her in a position of somebody else relying a lot on her in a real way and her having to make decisions and her, I feel like in this chapter is she, she makes a comment when they're kind of halfway down the mountain and she says to herself, Sansa Stark went up the mountain, but Elaine stone Uh, is coming down. Yes. She's like, Elaine was an older woman, a bastard brave. She, to me, that was like the flipping point of look how mature Sansa has become since she's been here. And she's not this teenager anymore in love with princes and rose-colored glasses of kind of what the world looks like. She is trenching down the side of this mountain, pretending to be somebody else. You know, it's 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 really cool, and I think that this metaphorically gives us a great look into how far she's come. I've always felt like the veil was this 
outside of what it is in the story, <clears throat> a physical place for our characters, I've always felt like it was this sort of like this strange rookery, just tucked away, safe, comfortable place, kind of like how this chapter starts. And, um, and that's a place where we will read or, or some people grow and learn and have these strange circumstances take place for them in their story. And they come out in a completely different way. Some people come out through the moon door. Some yeah. people go back down the mountain. And um, it seems that that was kind of the point or, or sort of the the goal of George R. R. Martin. And here he has it perfectly wrapped up with Sansa leaving and transforming in, in such a different way than anybody else anybody else in the series has it's one of the reasons why it's so interesting to read right you're just like wait a second definitely this is like an action sequence but a different kind of action sequence that conversation with miranda royce it's like that's what this is i'm this so is excited to dive into that very important moment yeah and i think that you can very easily write it off as just dialogue in the series that you might not have to remember. Yeah. What do you call it? Like reading for plot. You're just like, oh, yeah. okay, well, no one died here or whatever. And maybe I don't have to memorize all these names. Like that part at the end of the chapter when Littlefinger was going through all of this work. a lot. I was like, <laughs> that, oh, yeah. Nobody I can't wait to, to not quote this on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Nobody needs to know any of that. Jeez. But we're so. obviously, we're talking about the, the, Era. I don't know what the the word is to describe it. The situation with the heir in uh, the Vale. Who gets to be the leader of the Vale? Should anything happen to Sir Robert or to to Lord Robert Robin Aaron? Not should, but when. Yeah, that was a exactly. very interesting piece that comes out of this mm -hmm. this chapter. And as you get to the end, you kind of realize some things beforehand. Just the way that Sansa kind of deals with him, um, and. I think without really making any real decision consciously, but then having that conversation with Peter and, and there may be some sort of like underlying tone and this idea that Littlefinger knows that Robin's not going to make it, whether he has to do it on purpose or it happens on quote unquote accident and how much of this, um, what's that stuff called? Um, sweet sleep. Yeah. How much of this sweet sleep, sweet milk, whatever it's called. It's drugs. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> that he's like drinking. Kind of heroin. Um, they're worried Morphine. he's bleeding too much through the nose, but Sansa's like, you know, whatever, we got to get done. It's. Uh, we just got to try to get him down the mountain without a seizure, for God's sake. Yeah. It's it's interesting. So something um, I was reading a comment somewhere and I can't remember exactly where it is. So I wish I could give credit where credit is due. But. Um, Robin, somebody has this theory that George R. R. Martin is kind of setting up this idea that Sansa is going to be indirectly responsible for another death. And I hadn't thought about this, but like Lady and Joffrey and Ned and even maybe Lysa feel like Sansa has some indirect responsibility you know this it's is not so her... sweet you're just discovering this now about sansa <laughs> no but listen <laughs> <laughs> everyone's like mad at sansa for what happened to lady and stuff and it's like she was like 11 years old or whatever right what i'm trying to say is that robin may be another one to add to the list of oh that's cold indirect and and people that she's indirectly responsible for what's cold them dying not that i don't know that she's <laughs> 
Right. I, I know you know. It's just funny for a joke. <laughs> um, you know, but you choose to think differently. You're like, you know what? She's not responsible for that. I mean, we can't put the blame of all of that on Sansa. I don't think the blame, I don't think any of it should go on Sansa. I know that she didn't tell what happened correctly, exactly the way it happened, but there was like a hundred grown-ups in that room. That's a very distressing situation. Yeah, dude. Can you imagine being, you're, you've been on the road, you're leaving Winterfell, you've been traveling the King's Road for God knows how long. And this, the prince, anyway. your sister, your, yeah, anyway, off track. All I'm trying to say, <laughs> after you've been making, making fun of me for the last five minutes, <laughs> is that Robin could be another one of those people where Sansa is indirect, like the death count of the people that she's being indirectly responsible for is piling up. And he could be another one of those people, depending on what is going on with Peter. So Depending on how he kills him. Anyway, hmm. it's all very interesting. So they, she keeps her patience some way, somehow, and they get ready to head down the mountain. That was a task. There was a lot of finagling with the plans. It was like, all right. I remember she was having the conversation with Maester Coleman. He was like, I don't think that we should give him any more of that stuff. We've been giving him a lot of it lately and for the last while, and he's not behaving much like a normal person and she's like all right totally when we're down the mountain we can just quit we'll not do any more of it but we're gonna need a little extra today and he's like oh okay that makes sense she was like yeah yeah yeah. i get your points but but well this whole thing of he can't be bleeding through the is he bleeding through the nose while earlier in the chapter he's like sniffling in bed Mm -hmm. and we don't really know but yeah, like, he's yeah, really whatever. close to bleeding through the nose. We gotta do what you gotta what we gotta do. Yeah, she's like, this is gonna be really hard. Baelish left me in charge of this for some strange reason, and we've got to get down the mountain. And you know what I thought was really interesting is it may have come down a little. No, it's in the same conversation. She's trying to get him to be strong and to kind of play face, and she says, "What was what were best." For or I'm quoting from my notes and not from the book directly, but what's best for Robert the boy and what's best for Lord Aaron is not always the same. And I like that insight that she has of putting on, because she does it well and she's been doing it for a long time, but putting on a show in order to think that everybody around her or everybody around him can see kind of that he's a strong leader and everything's fine and he's has his wits about him, even though it's like the worst kept secret. But um, I, I it's just like the sacrifice and like the decision that you have to make lesser of two evils of what's more important. So let's just do whatever it takes. When she says, yeah, go ahead and give him the sweet sleep. That's making the decision. What's better for the boy or what's better for the veil. And that that's not for her. That's not no. for her for her cover. That's right. to make sure that Baelish's plan, which is I'm the Lord Protector of the Vale, because this strong young leader of the Vale that's one day gonna rule in my stead, I'm not ruling forever, everyone, is on his way to becoming that person. And now we're gonna send him on the tour of the Vale and he's gonna grow and learn how to fight and he's gonna be really strong and he's definitely not having seizures on the way down. Right. And he's definitely not afraid. And he's definitely not weak. Right. Yeah, we can't we can't give him so much sweet sleep that he falls asleep and we put him inside of a box on the way down. Like that he can't be carried down the mountain like that. Someone like yeah. someone brought that up. The Sansa, they're like, you know, we could just do that. No, <laughs> we probably shouldn't. 
<laughs> that would be a lot easier on everyone. Isn't that crazy? Just what, what he represents in this chapter. He's just like, no one wants him there. He's a burden. He represents, you know, he's in, he's in the way of Harry, the heir's claim, who's got so many plans around him. Baelish has got so many plans adapted, connected to him. He's not doing anything useful. He's got the most awesome bedroom. And that plan he brought up with Sansa, he's like, here's what we're going to do. And this is when he sounded the most grown up and like able to make decisions in this chapter. He said, here's what we'll do. We'll get some more of that sweet sleep. So we're going to get a little messed up and we're going to play games and lay in bed all day and just kind of lay around on each other. What do you think about that, Sansa? He's like, I like the way you look. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? He's, He's just not useful to anyone outside of the purposes for their own schemes. And after, you know, having a conversation with Miranda Royce and Lord Baelish, it's like, yeesh, there's so much going on in the veil. There's so much going on. And I feel like just in general with friends and stuff, it's not something that's really that talked about. And that's, I know that people are very connected to this and they definitely want to see what happens with Sansa, but it's just like, there's, I don't know. It's good. It's good to read the chapters and get to get refreshed with excitement as mm-hmm. part of this reread on a certain storyline. Well, and, and it definitely happened this time. It's complicated because you look at somebody like Miranda Royce, who Littlefinger knows can be a threat and who is so unbelievably charming and who disarms her, disarms Sansa right off the bat and gets a ton of information out of her mm-hmm. without Sansa even realizing what she's giving up about her identity. Um, and kind of what that could, the implications of that could be for Miranda and for her fam, who is powerful, and for what Littlefinger's trying to do. I think there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes, and it's super interesting. Yeah, the whole situation is very strange. After Baelish wins the support of Nestor Royce, seemingly. We have this strange situation where his daughter is coming all the way up the mountain, which is insanely no treacherous to do. And let's not – it's just really, really annoying. Think about what – you know what I mean? Like the decision that's got to be going through your head to be like, yeah, I'll take a mule up with my stone. This is exactly what I want to do today. And then I'll go all the way back down. It's like driving someone to the airport when it's three hours away, except you have to ride a mule up a mountain to do it. Mm-hmm. And she does it anyway, all because she wants to talk to Sansa or maybe see the view. I don't think it's to see the view. No, it's <laughs> it's pretty telling. And I'm really excited to see how it plays out in the Winds of Winter. Because this conversation, like you said, Sansa does let, let slip a lot of things. Her uh, response to when they, were, when they were speaking and she brings up, Miranda brings up the new high septon and elaine posing as someone who was brought up in the faith all the way to the point where she had her first flowering you know so which was pretty recent for her age at this point it just has no reaction to it and then basically in the next breath she mentions a new lord commander at the wall she's like john snow which is i mean his poster's in my room yeah (laughs) that's a rookie mistake it's her brother though you know what i mean i know but was like such a but and also her um saying my lady instead of i always miss just, that she speaks like a highborn yeah yeah i guess that is a pretty big giveaway how much do people pay attention to that like how much 
How many people do you think in Westeros are just pretending that they're highborn all the time and they have horrible accents and sound not very smart? Well, I I mean, think about some, like the Hound talking to Arya. Yeah. I think a lot of people pay attention to it. Yeah. Surprisingly so. Mm. So it's just, it's it's interesting. And I think that Miranda learns quite a bit in this chapter. And so what she's so going to do with that information. Yeah, so do we. What she's going to do for, <clears throat> what she's going to do with that information I think is up for debate, and I guess we're going to have to find out. But it could put a dent in what Littlefinger is trying to accomplish. She's like, tell me about his Littlefinger. Is it little? (laughs) I definitely don't (laughs) think you're his daughter, by the way. Hello. (laughs) She's also really funny, and I think Sansa just likes this. Sansa's so disarmed by it because it's nice to just have girl talk. Yeah, a little bit of conversation outside of whatever the farce was that she was doing with Robin. Yeah. Especially as Miranda's like she's she talks about how she uh she's like the opposite of Sansa. She's like, kind, how boring would that be? I aspire to be wicked. That's mm-hmm. so the opposite of Sansa, <laughs> you know? Constantly calling she, out bastards, just making fun of bastards in that conversation too. Yeah. This right to her face. She's supposed so to be a funny. bastard. She knows. She's like, you know, your teats are ample. You have ample teats, but mine are bigger. You're prettier than me. But and it's just like, all right, then. Her husband dying. Yeah. I killed him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot they're having sex. That's what happened. It was disconcerting, certainly. <laughs> he was on me. Well, he was in me. Uh, yeah. Sorry, the details. Sansa's blushing. She's like, oh, my God. 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 First thing she th- no no that was later when uh, I was going to mention the hound moment mm-hmm. when she thought of the hound when Baelish kissed her. You know, even if Miranda is completely scheming, I think that that's totally fine. You don't think she's like could cause any genuine I think that she's finding out in this conversation that Sansa is not in on things with Baelish. Mhm. The way she responds to the information about Harry the heir and she just doesn't know who that is. And you know what I mean? Like there was the the Waynewood detail that she perked up at, but she didn't have any other thoughts to all the other families that came to that wedding or any thoughts about the money that was being traded around. She just kind of had a one track mind and uh, it wasn't the same information that they had been getting from Baelish at the bottom of the hill or bottom of the mountain, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever her motivations are, I'm glad that she had a good conversation on that scary trip down the mountain. I know that sounds kind of, you know, like it does nothing for the story. But for the sake of a character that I enjoy's enjoyment in this chapter, it was probably a nice respite from what she had been getting up in the eerie. And I know it's a lot more interesting and a lot less boring than the one-sided guy that she gets when she hangs out with Baelish. It's just like, dude. It's a nice little distraction. Maybe you go on a date or something before you talk to Sansa. Like, you need to learn how to relax. <laughs> like, you got to relax. Every oh. other word, he's just like, you know, you let me show you how to kiss when we yeah. see each other. Ew, it's gross. It's it's, it's really so, cringy. It's just cringy. It's so mm. cringy. He's so obsessed with her. Yeah. I do love that when she, when they first see each other, he goes on this little... <laughs> um, I don't even know what you would call it. They're like, sorry, he's like a boys club. They're like around the fire or whatever. And he fancies himself hanging with the guys. This is what I normally do. I didn't pay those guys to be here. (laughs) Hey, what's up? He wishes. (laughs) 
Sorry, what <laughs> were you going like, to say? Um, I'm trying to find when he he gives Sansa news of what's happening in King's Landing. Uh, I need to scroll through this 5,000 chap- page chapter. I'm um, just hanging out by the fire, enjoying some mead with my friends. Yeah, so they're just chilling. He's I totally have friends. He says, you would not believe half of what's happening in King's Landing, sweetling. <laughs> Cersei stumbles from one idiocy to the next, helped along by her counsel of de- the deaf, the dim, and the blind. <laughs> I always anticipated that she would beggar the realm to destroy herself, but I would never expected she would do it quite so fast. It's quite vexing. I had hoped to have four or five quiet years to plant some seeds and allow some fruits to ripen, but now it's a good thing that I thrive on chaos. Oh, man. That's cool, though. Chaos is a ladder. Yeah. What little peace and order the five kings left us will no longer survive the three queens, I fear, which is an interesting tidbit that we learn about Lord Peter Baelish. So do you think that third queen really quick is Danny or Sansa? So what about Marcella? Oh, yeah, because this was the Dorne chapter. Was I think that that's just... interesting because we get through the chapter. He basically lays out the plan that he has. For And this kind of spirals into a larger question that I have. But he lays out this plan for what's going to happen. And Sansa is going to marry. And she's eventually going to be able to come take over the veil. And she's going to be able to have Winterfell. And she's going to be Sansa Stark. And blah, 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 blah. All this stuff. The Herald becomes Lord Protector of the Veil. My question of all of that is kind of what is in it for Littlefinger and like what he wants and what his end game is. Is it to put Sansa on the throne? And I know that's kind of like a showism, but is that his end goal so that they can like rule together? Or is he trying to prove something? Or is it just like power for power's sake? But I just feel like what does Littlefinger get out of what he's trying to give Sansa you know what I mean yeah that's a good question I don't know if you he's already so powerful exactly like at best what's he gonna like say Sansa becomes like Sansa and Harry sit the Iron Throne whatever by some weird way and what is in it for him like he's the hand, hand of the, of the king, king yeah. or he's on the high count, high the high council, whatever small it's council. called, the small council. <laughs> this isn't church. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, <laughs> you guys have a high best, council. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um. At best, yeah, he's on the small council, which he already basically is. He has all of that, you know. So it's like I don't. It's it's kind of a lateral move. Is he really doing all this work to move laterally? So I think that that's probably the biggest question I have coming out of this chapter is just like, okay, Littlefinger, what do you, what, what are you trying to do? Maybe he really does love chaos and he just wants to make sure (laughs) that everyone is sort of trying to put out a fire so he can kind of sneak around the house without being noticed. And just whatever happens to him happens and everybody kind of fails except him and people keep needing him. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really seem like a good goal. Like you would, uh, maybe it, you would have fun if you were that kind of person, like within it. But what are you going for? What's like, the end game? Like I, I see like a a house and and uh, lots of strange animals and uh, maybe a waterfall and a secret entrance. You know what I mean? I have some certain goals, but it's it's less about people yelling at each other. 
Right. Maybe he sees Harrenhal. Melted walls. <laughs> He's like, I have a place where I can put anyone in charge of this place and I can ruin them because it's cursed. He loves Harrenhal. He really does love Harrenhal. Also, he loves Sir Shadrick. We got to give Sir Shadrick a shout out. Shout all right? out. Of House, of House Baelish. Shadrick of the Shady Glen, the Mad Mouse. You guys remember Shadrick, right? From way back in the day. Hanging out with Brienne, and now he's here. What a connection. I just wanted to give him a shout out. Baelish has got his guys. You like blink and you miss that. Yeah, but what a weird name, though. It just sounds like he's up to something. (laughs) You know what I mean? Shadrick. Yeah. It's like, who are you, man? You're definitely up to something. He's at the gates of the moon. He's like, hey, I'm here. (laughs) I'm here with Baelish. I'm one of his friends. God, those guys were weird. They were really weird. There was definitely a weird vibe. (laughs) They were like, well, the thing is, they don't see a lot of well-kept people in general so you got to think of like how rare that is in the first place but not to mention a well-kept high-born woman girl who's been who's been working on you know brushing your hair for all these years and staying really clean and smelling good they're just like there's these guys in the room like oh yeah yeah Uh, your daughter's really pretty man he's like yeah she is And he's like i wouldn't you know (laughs) <laughs> Sorry for us. Like they're they're so appalling compared to her that they're apologizing for just being in her presence. He Littlefinger loves it. I do too. It's kind of funny. It's really <laughs> funny. It was such a just a interesting funny. moment. I think Sansa instills the same bravery in Peter Baelish that she instills in Sir Robert Aaron. I keep calling him Sir and Lord Robert Aaron. When she tells him that he is brave, she gives off the impression to Baelish that he's charming. I mean, not really. I guess by just not throwing water in his face and protesting outright, she just kind of lets him get away with it. But clearly he gets this kind of weird swagger from having the daughter of Catelyn Stark in his charge. He really feels like he's got this stuff figured out. Sansa Stark is going to be his downfall. Baelish. We would be remiss. To not talk about the most exciting part of this chapter. You think there's no action, but there is. When they cross the, whatever it's called. The Bridge of Kaz of Doom. Is that what it's called? No. <laughs> okay. Some people at home are cheering though, so just go with Sorry. it. <laughs> just go no. with it. Everybody knows that I'm, okay, I'm just not going to go there. Anyway. They're crossing, and Maya, who is the best in the biz, almost falls as she's making her way across. The wind blows. It was Bran. He was like, I need to show Sansa that she has to do this. I don't think that that's where – I think of all the places that Bran's going to show up, this is not necessarily the place. Hey, you don't know that. Don't kill my dreams. That's true. Sorry. (laughs) I take it all back. Thank you. Instead of trying to explain it, I'm just going to read it from the book. Because that's always better. So as Maya starts to cross, it says, When the bastard girl led her mule out from beneath the shelter of the spire, the wind caught her in its teeth. Her cloak lifted, twisting and flapping in the air. Maya staggered, and for half a heartbeat, it seemed as if she would be blown over the precipice. But somehow, she regained her balance and went on. Elaine took Robert's gloved hand in her own to stop him sh- stop his shaking. Sweet Robin, she said, I'm scared. Hold my hand and help me get across. I know you're not afraid. He looked at her, his pupils small, dark pinpricks, and his eyes as big as wide as eggs. I'm not? 
not you. You're my winged knight, sweet Sir Sweet Robin. The winged knight could fly, Robin Robert whispered. Higher than the mountains, she gave his hand a squeeze. Yeah, that was a pretty scary moment. We're talking about howling wind, wasn't it? It was a yard across and eight yards long that they had to traverse. Yeah, listen, hand in hand, I'm going to keep reading. Hand in hand, they walked out onto the bare stone saddle, their cloaks snapping and flapping behind them. All around was empty air and sky, the ground falling sharply to either side. There was ice underfoot and broken stones just waiting to turn an ankle, and the wind was howling fiercely. It sounds like a wolf, thought Sansa, a ghost wolf as big as the mountains. Ah, you see? Mm Mm-hmm. And when they were on the other side, Maya Stone was laughing and lifting Robert for a hug. Just like her dad did. Just yeah. like her dad. Come on. <laughs> That's so sweet. Oh, I love that. I love that closing of themes and feels that George delivers us. We don't get a lot of payoff sometimes, but that that was a I got some there. You know, and also just the payoff of Sansa doing that. I did not see it coming the first time I read through. And I was just like, wait a second, what's happening? I thought it was going to be totally different, but I think I understand why she's your favorite character, you know, out of all the cool stuff that happened in this chapter and all the scheming and the smart decisions that people make, this was easily the most impressive thing because we know how volatile that person is, but she got him to get off that damn mule in the freezing howling temperature and he's not used to ever being outside or sometimes like not even off of a a drug that sedates him Mm -hmm. and she led him across that that gorge jesus hold my hand and help me get across i know you're not afraid well played so good so if sansa wants to help me get to the gym later tonight I could probably use the same. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's it. That was a lane two. Super long, super great. John eight. Should we get to our owns? I think I want to start. I was going to say. Do we want to start with Sansa? Because I know exactly what you're going to pick. I'm going to just take it back to John eight. John eight was an interesting read. I enjoyed the chapter. I'm giving my own to John for making leathers the master at arms. Because he can fight really well. And the point that he made, it was the kind of point that someone who's been in a fight and knows that a fight will be coming makes about who teaches people how to fight. He was like, I have a feeling that they're going to be running into some hard times and danger later. So they should see what hard times and danger is like right now when they're training. So when they see it, their first instinct isn't just to freak out and run away. Mm Mm-hmm. Practice with the best of them. So Leathers and John, I guess it's a shared own, but mostly on John for making that call. That's a great one. Thank you. I'm going to give my own to John when he thinks of Arya. Val asks, what's when John and Val are kind of having a little bit of a conversation and Melisandre comes up Mm -hmm. and Val says she knows who he is about the baby. She, She sees things in her fires. Arya, he thought, hoping it was so. Ashes and cinders. Kings and dragons. Yeah, he's like, I hope she's accurate. Yeah, so. That would be a good thing. John thinking of Arya. And for Elaine, too. Great question. Hannah owned to the Secret Garden. (laughs) I love Secret Garden. I don't want to get, I, so I can't decide what I want to give my own to. There's a line that I really like about how Sansa feels like even the gods can't answer her or even the gods are silent up at the Eerie, oh, which I yeah. thought was really poignant and interesting, but I don't think that that's own worthy. You mean Bran, Sansa. You mean Bran. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bran is all over this chapter, I guess. Um, 
I mean, I just want to give Sansa my own overall. I feel like I can't, I, there's not a specific moment that I necessarily want to give it to her for. I'm kind of feeling at the end of this. There's just like so many things that I think that are very interesting. And I you just, can make some fake accounts on Twitter or Instagram or like make fake email addresses and just send them into the show that way. And read them <laughs> off and be like, this person said a great thing. <laughs> so you're just giving it to Sansa in general? I mean, I don't know. That's not like, very far off brand. I know. But I just feel like that's so cliche and so classic me and not interesting at all. But um, I just enjoyed this very long chapter. I'm going to give my own to Maya Stone for taking command of the situation and organizing that trip, which was a pretty crazy trip. Everyone moving out of the Erie for the winter. It's a pretty it's cool a thing. Deal. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. And for catching herself and not falling off the bridge, that would have been certainly a twist at this part of the chapter. Not that we know her that well, but still. They would have not made it down. Also, shout out to Lothar Brune. He's got good taste. I'm still looking for a better own. It's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying so hard. (laughs) I liked your own. Thanks. It's an Elaine chapter. It's a Sansa own. There's some kind of like cool subversion to that. Just go with it. Just own my truth. Yeah. Own your truth. Ha ha. LOL. Good thing there's owns from the lot of you that are joining us in this off season and our treacherous reread through a feast with dragons. Jerry from Mayo is the first. Mayo is delicious. Fight me. John eight own to Mormont's Raven, who must be desperately frustrated that nobody is taking any notice of what he's saying. How he hasn't pecked anyone's eyes eyes out yet, I'll never know. Snow, snow, corn, king, dead. Elaine, too, <laughs> owned to Elaine herself for her patience with the petulant little brat, ouch, sweet Robin, that she didn't decide to send him down the express route to the gates of the moon via the moon door is admirable. See, that's a Sansa own you could have used. It's only an accident. <laughs> Next, we have Nafisa underscore W on Twitter, who says, My own to John goes to Old Bear for thinking ahead and leaving cautionary notes on the horrific criminals who joined the watch. My own to Elaine goes a sweet Robin. He's not as weak and sickly as they make him out to be. He threw a chamber pot during a tantrum. Oh, Hashtag strong Robin. I forgot about that. <laughs> when she first goes into the room, yeah, he's like, come lay in bed. And she's like, hold on, let me get these windows because your shit's all over the floor. <laughs> Good God. Molly Raisley on Twitter. My own goes to George for knowing the Game of Owns reading order and giving us some good Queen Alison, Jaharis, Sansa, John parallels. Yeah, isn't it great that he that George R. R. Martin's following along? Yeah, that's really cool. If only we would get through it so he could finish writing. LOL. Ha, ha, ha. Now we have at Heathen King with their spooky Halloween name. Ooh. Heathen Stein's monster. Love it. Own to Lord Commander Snow for taking the long view. If that the wildlings at Hardhome are killed, they will become whites in the army of the dead. Unfortunately, his fellow Night's Watchmen don't share the long view. Their short-sightedness and bigotry endangers the realm. Elaine Owen goes to this endgame foreshadowing. I'm a bastard too now, just like him. Oh, it would be so sweet to see him once again. Winky face. We got the gifts to prove it. Good Queen Sansa. <laughs> and finally, Brienne of Tarth at Beauty Brienne on Twitter. John Owen to Mother Mole for being the name that catches Bowen Marsh up, not Satin or Giant Spain or Hop Robin or Toad or Small Paw. And... For Elaine, own to Elaine, 
for having way more patience than I do when it comes to getting a stubborn child out the door in the morning. And to Maya Stone for existing and being the most self-assured minor character in the series. Hashtag favorite tertiary character. If it's a Maya Stone cosplay would be really cool. You should do it. That would be a deep cut. (laughs) So those are our owns. Those are your owns. And if you want to participate and send in your own thoughts, you can do so in a couple different ways. You can find us on Twitter at Game of Owns. You can find us on Instagram at Game of Owns, or you can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. We're still figuring out how to post Instagram stories. We know how to do Instagram pictures, but there's only <laughs> so many pictures of books that you can take. You know what I mean? Like reading the books again. <laughs> what a surprise. I'll have like really artsy photographs of the Winds of Winter, though. I promise when it comes out, like the, with the book jacket and like maybe we'll put like those little slips in it that people put in when someone dies. Oh, yeah. That'd be a fun thing to do. And we were talking about organizing stuff today, how fun it is. Like you could color coordinate like who dies and like who they're aligned to and what it means for the end of the story. I would be thrilled to do and that. You can make a YouTube yes. video that about it. great. What do you think? <laughs> so some great content coming your way when Winds of Winter is published. But until then. At Game of Owns. And if you're not listening to Rewatch the Throne, you can. If you head over to rewatchthethrone.com or stitcherpremium.com and use the code THRONES. You can get an entire month of their service that our show is on for free, and you could binge listen to the whole series. We're about to make it to Hard Home, so might want to do that. Catch up. We're having so much fun doing rewatch. It really is fun to just watch. It's kind of like those Sundays in season. If you guys like those episodes, we watch the episode, and then we treat it like it's one of those nights we just get on, and we're like, hey, so... How about that insane thing that happened in season five? The ruins of Valyria isn't that fun. And we kind of pretend like it's the first time that it's happening and it's fun. It's awesome. Plus, Hannah and I didn't get to talk about a lot of that stuff. So, yeah, but we're almost done with season five and I was here for season six. So, yeah, from there. Can you be believe that first off? No, I can't. We should tell everyone about the fire and blood event that we're going to in November with George R. R. Martin. Oh, yes. Come on. Look it up. On Monday, November 19th at 7.30 at the historic Lowe's Theater in Jersey City, which is just outside of New York City, George R. Martin will, we'll just read the description from the event. Join us at the historic Lowe's Theater in Jersey City as we welcome George R. R. Martin to celebrate the release of his latest book, Fire and Blood. George R. R. Martin is originally from Bayonne, New Jersey, and we are thrilled to welcome him back for a homecoming celebration of his latest book at the gorgeous Landmark Theater. The thrilling history of the Targaryens come to life in this masterly work by the author of A Song of Ice and Fire. A lot of our friends are going to be there, and it's going to be really fun. And a lot of people from A Song of Ice and Fire, and we're going to hang out with George R. R. Martin, I'm assuming, because he's going to be there. Yeah, Shadrick the Mad Mouse is going to be there. Dark Star is going to be, be there. Wild. Yeah. It's going to be fun. And I think there's still tickets and things like that if anybody wants to, to come out. It looks like tickets are still available. And if you're going, you should let us know. I need to buy my ticket so nobody else buy tickets until I can buy mine. George didn't just give you a ticket himself? He mailed it to me in a golden envelope. <laughs> oh, I just didn't want to tell anybody. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> I wanted to seem just like everybody else. I'm sure that's how Jeff's was sent to him as well. His was hand-delivered. Hand-delivered to himself. Yeah. (laughs) We're still trying to convince some of our other friends, or at least I'm still trying to convince some of my other friends that are far, far away to come to this. So just talk about it in general on Twitter, and maybe they'll 
That's a dumb thing. I'm trying to get Aziz and Ashea to go, but they're not going to come. It's going to be really fun. They're like, we just party with George, so. (laughs) We get it. (laughs) It's old news for them. (laughs) Until then, we're going to continue on with our reading order at afeastwithdragons.com. Next on the feast, Tyrion 9, Cersei 9. Ooh. (laughs) So, (laughs) if you want to catch up. Buckle up. If you want to read... Check out the reading order in general if you've never read before. You can go check that out. As I said, at afeastofdragons.com, you can read Cersei and Tyrion 9 and send in your owns. This is the penultimate Cersei chapter, and things start to get really dark. I'm excited. Also, the same is really happening for Tyrion. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to us hang out tonight, though. We appreciate it, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in your owns and reading along and participating and we will be back soon.